Wildwood Community Church exists to glorify God by connecting people to Christ, His worship, His community, and His mission. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Today we're going to begin a short two-part series that will take us into Romans chapter 6 as we continue to talk about the implications of the gospel uh, in in Romans 6 in a series called Set Free. Um, But before we we look at Romans 6 together, I want to just kind of set the context for this little section of Scripture that we're going to read. In Romans 6, Paul begins by basically asking a question, and this is the question that he asks. Is preaching the gospel dangerous? Is preaching the gospel dangerous? Here's basically the question that Paul is asking. If we are saved by the grace of God through what Jesus has done, through his work and not our work, if it is on the basis of of his work and not our participation in ceremonies or our adherence to the law, if it's fully on Jesus' work, then why should I work at all? Paul is anticipating this question. Are we not encouraging people when we proclaim that salvation is found through Christ alone? Are we not encouraging people to sin more? Even more specifically, if every time we sin, grace increases, and if the grace of God is good, then why should we not try to sin even more so that more grace shows up? Paul seems to be asking the question in Romans chapter 6 and verse 1, is preaching the gospel dangerous? I don't know, maybe even over the last few weeks as we looked at the the gospel in in Romans 4 and 5, you might have had some thought that was like, wait, 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 hang on a second. You're really emphasizing Jesus' work. Doesn't that set us up to live crazy? Maybe you had that question. Paul anticipated us having that question. That's why he begins Romans 6 where he does. But before we we look at Romans 6, I want to just set up a a little scenario for you as we think about the dangers of the gospel. And I'm going to pick on a friend here. I'm going to pick on my friend Rob. And I'm going to say, hey, Rob, could I have your cell phone and maybe your car keys? Thank you. Um, you're, you're all thinking the same thing. I'm glad he's talking to Rob and not to me. Uh, and I'm going to take these back, and I'm going to give them to Steve. Uh, you're welcome. Hey, it's a, it's a nice ride here, I'm telling you. Remember where you got them. Um, now, let me ask you a question. Is it dangerous? Is it dangerous to give away your keys and your cell phone? Does that feel a little dangerous, a little vulnerable? Yeah, it does. I mean, Rob especially is nodding his head. Yes, it feels very, very dangerous, very vulnerable for for me to give away those things. I mean, you would never go out to the mall and just the next person that walks by hand them your keys and your cell phone. You wouldn't do that, right? Because it feels a little too vulnerable to do that. But here's the thing. We actually do things like that all the time. You know, if you have children, do they ever ask you for your cell phone? I take that as a yes. Do you ever give them your cell phone? 50-50, right? Sometimes you do something, but you give your phone away to somebody else. Do you ever give your car keys to your spouse or to a friend to take your car and to drive it someplace? Absolutely you do on, on occasion. Do you ever even give your, your, your wallet 
to somebody to take care of something. Absolutely. I, we had this experience this, this Friday night. We went out to dinner. Um, my nine-year-old son, Josh, my wife, and I go out to dinner, and he decided that he, he wants a dessert, and he goes up to the counter, and I give him my credit card to go pay for it. It's the first time he's ever done this. And I'm just watching him kind of beam as he walks up there with this card. He's holding it out like this far away from his body. Walks up there, he gets the stuff, and he, he, he pays for it. We, we give away things that are very valuable to us in situations that might otherwise be considered dangerous but are quite normal because of the love and the relationship that exists between the folks we give them to, Right? Now, I'll, I'll give it back to you, Rob, just so you don't have to sweat this out. Uh, thank you, Steve, for, uh, oh, they're gone. No, just kidding. Here we go. Um, it's really a similar argument that the Apostle Paul is going to make about the beauty of the gospel, and that is that God loves us so much, and he trusts us so much, and he has a relationship with us that is at such a level that he is going to entrust us with something very valuable to himself. And he's going to to ask us to live inside of that trust in a way that is honoring to him. This is really how he answers the question in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 14. So if you've got a Bible, open up to Romans 6. We're going to spend the balance of our time today in these verses. Romans 6, verses 1 to 14 some of my favorite verses in, in all of the New Testament we're going to look at today. Paul begins, and this is what he says. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? In other words, isn't the gospel dangerous, Paul? That's the question that's being asked. Paul answers in the most emphatic way the language will allow him to answer. He says, by no means, no way. If you draw that conclusion, then you misunderstand what I've just told you. He says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. Now in these 14 verses, I think we see three things as Paul answers the question, um, why the gospel is, is not dangerous if we understand it. 
and if we respond to it the way that God has intended that we respond. Paul's going to answer this question basically in a, in a similar format uh, to the greatest commandment. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, there's this great greatest commandment, that is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul with all your mind and with all your strength. Jesus will repeat this later on in his ministry. And in a similar way, Paul responds to this claim that the gospel will inspire us to sin by saying, no, no, as we respond to the gospel, we will respond with our head, we will respond with our heart, and we will respond with our hands when we understand what God has done for us in Christ. Now, the first thing he does is he says that there's something that has to do with our head. There's something we are to know. We are to know that our identity has changed. We see this in the first 10 verses, three times in those 10 verses, in verse 3, in verse 6, and in verse 9, the word know is mentioned there. There is something we are to know, something for our head to remember as it relates to our life with Christ. And what Paul mentions specifically is that we are to know that our identity has changed. We are to remember that. If we have placed our faith and our trust in Christ, there has been a fundamental change in who we are. Our connection to him is what defines us. We are not who we used to be. And Paul calls us to remember that, that we would live in light of that. He gives kind of the headline for that in verse 2 when he, he says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? He's talking about a death that we have to sin. Now, what does that mean? Well, he's going to explain that for us in the next eight verses. But we see verse 2 as somewhat of a headline. As he begins to explain what it means to have died to sin, Paul's going to begin to talk about baptism in verses 3 and 4. Now, baptism, as we saw in chapter 4, is not something that saves us. The participation in the ceremony of water baptism is not something that saves us. But it's interesting when Paul writes here in Romans 6, he's going to talk about baptism as something that is a a given regarding those who have placed their faith in Christ. In other words, everybody who has trusted in Christ, in Paul's understanding, will have then taken the step to be baptized. The two go hand in hand. Faith is what saves us, but the faithful are baptized. That seems to be his perspective in verses 3 and 4. And as he talks about baptism, he sees it as a great symbol to demonstrate what happens when a person is identified with Christ. Now, I particularly love verses 3 and 4 because they're they're very personally significant for me. Some of you have heard me say this before, but when I was a student at Dallas Seminary, I grew up in a tradition that had baptized uh, children as infants. And so I had been sprinkled with water as an infant. I'd never been baptized since trusting in Christ. And I remember being in, in class in Romans, a Greek class, and studying Romans 6, verses 3 and 4, and God just opening my eyes to this picture of baptism and, and me um, just wanting to go ahead and be baptized. And I remember I was working as a youth pastor at the time. I called the, the pastor um, from a payphone. This is before cell phones, from a payphone at the school. And I said, hey, Wayne, I would like to be baptized on Wednesday night. Um, and he said, okay. And so I was baptized with the youth group I was leading watching. And then I, right after that, I baptized my wife. Um, just as we had seen in this pattern of Scripture, what baptism symbolizes. We see it in verses 3 and 4. He talks about baptism. 
See, the word baptize means to immerse. Symbolically, it means to fully identify with something. When I teach our baptism class, I, I illustrate that this way. You think about it with the Titanic on the Atlantic. When the Titanic is floating above the waters of the Atlantic, you stand on the shore and you can see Titanic and Atlantic. But once the Titanic hits the iceberg and sinks below the water, you would only see the Atlantic. The Titanic would have been fully identified with the Atlantic. That's hard to say. It's like a Dr. Seuss book, but there you go. It's underneath the water. It's fully identified with it. In a very similar way, when we think of, of, of baptize, if a Greek were to use their language to describe that event with the Titanic and the Atlantic, they would say that the Titanic was baptized into the Atlantic. It became fully identified with the ocean. And in the same way, when we come to faith in Christ, we become fully identified with several aspects of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. That's what we see in verses 3 and 4. In verse 3, he talks about our identification with the death of Christ. Here's the the picture of baptism. When When you see someone baptized, they are immersed inside of water, but they are taken down to the water this way. And when they go down to the water, it's a picture of their identification with the death of Christ. It looks like someone is dying. They're going down under the water. There's an identification with the death of Christ that happens there. This is what our understanding is as Christians. Our understanding is that when we trust Christ, then we are so identified with the death of Christ that everything within us that is worthy of God's wrath, every sin that we've committed and all of the payment that that sin demands was satisfied when Jesus died. So by identifying with the death of Christ, we're saying that his death paid for my sin. In baptism, we see that pictured. And not only do they go down like a death, but they go underwater like a burial. And again, the, the, the picture there is that we are identified with the burial of Christ. Jesus really died. And if we know Christ, then we are identified with his burial, and this is what that means. That means that everything within us that is worthy of God's wrath died and was buried with Christ, and it's not attached to our identity any longer. So if you were an alcoholic, when you come to know Christ, you come up as someone who is not identified as an alcoholic. You may struggle with some things. We'll talk about that a little later on in this passage, but that is no longer your identity. In Christ, you're given a new identity, an identity of following him, an identity as a saint, not a sinner. You see, when we see in baptism, we see a picture of our identification with the death and with the burial of Christ, and then we do not not leave them underwater for very long. We've never lost anyone in a baptism because we bring them back up. Well, why do we bring them back up? Because it's a picture of our identification, not just with Jesus' death and burial, but also with his resurrection. Here's what that indicates for us. It indicates that just as Jesus had a newness of life, so we too have the opportunity to walk about in a newness of life. Trusting in Christ is not the finish line of our Christianity. It is the starting blocks. When we come to know Christ, we are separated from that which is in us that is worthy of wrath, but we are united with Christ and the opportunity to live with him forever. This is the picture of the gospel, and it's the picture of baptism. Paul writes here in Romans 6, and he wants them to know that one of the things we need to know, one of the things we need to remember that will inspire us to follow Christ and not sin is that our identity has changed. We have been identified with 
the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ, he reminds them of their baptism and he says, remember those things and and live in light of them. He continues that on in verses 5 and following as he continues to build this argument that their lives have changed. They're not who they used to be. Paul will say it in his letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5.17, when he says that anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. In Romans 6, he says it in a few more words, but the idea is the same, that there is a change in our identity when we come to know Christ. He says in in verse 5, he says, if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Now, that's a a great little little verse there because this is what it reminds us of. See, if we believe that Jesus paid for our sins, then we also should believe that we'll get to be with Jesus forever in in a resurrected life in the future. In other words, our, our life on this planet might be 70 years long. Let's just think about that. For some of you who are 72, I'm not trying to say you've expired, okay? But this is just for argument's sake. Let's say that, that 70 years old is, is how long you're going to live. And let's say that for 40 years of that 70-year life, you did not know Christ. For the last 30 years, you do, plus eternity, plus eternity. Who are you really? Are you who you were for for 40 years, or are you who you are for eternity? If we are connected to Christ in his death, we have a hope of being connected to Christ in his resurrection. Our identity has changed, and he's calling us to live forward, not backwards. In light of who we are, who we will be, where we'll be forever, live that way. Don't live backwards. That's Paul's argument. Verse 6 continues this. He says, "We we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Now, that's a mouthful, and that's a very difficult verse for Bible scholars to, to explain. And here's why it's so hard for us to explain. What is the body of sin? What is the old self? It says that our old self was crucified and the, the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Verse 7 goes on and says that, that we are, are free from sin. But here's the reality. Does sin still have an appeal to us? I hope that you would say yes, because otherwise I'm the only one in the room that it does. How, how can we be dead to sin, and yet it still has an appeal to us? How can we be set free from sin, and yet it has an appeal to us? How can, can we say, say that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, and yet we still have temptation to sin. What in the world does it mean to say that our old self has been crucified and the body of sin has been brought to nothing, that we have been set free from sin? What What does this even mean? Well, I think it's helpful for us to walk through each of these pictures and look at them individually. The first is this old self that was crucified with Christ. I think this is talking about our entire identity before we came to know Christ. It's talking about who we used to be, the us that was under God's wrath, the us that was separated from God, the us that was marked and defined by our sin and unrighteousness. That us died with Christ and was buried in the tomb. That's not you anymore. That's not you. If you know Christ, that you was buried and a new you lives today in a newness of life. The old self is is all 
that was in us that was worthy of God's wrath, that identity. The body of sin, what is that idea that might be brought to nothing? And what is this this sin that we've been set free from? Here's the general idea. It doesn't mean that sin no longer has an appeal to us, but it does mean that we are no longer enslaved to sin in two ways. In one way, we're not enslaved to sin is because we're no longer uh, under sin's ultimate payment or judgment. We're set free from so the wages of sin is death and a separation from God. If we know Christ, we have the hope of forgiveness. We have the reality of, of living in, in, in eternal life and not uh, something that is going to end in death and separation from God. We have that, that hope of being separated from sin's ultimate consequence. But it also talks about being separated from sin's necessary rule. The picture that we saw earlier in the video and the, 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 the shackles on the screen being open, the idea is that if we know Christ, then those shackles have been opened and we now have an opportunity to follow Christ. Before, we had no choice. We were enslaved to sin. But if we know Christ, we have been set free from sin's necessary rule. And while we live out the rest of our days on this earth, we have a choice who we're going to serve. That's the idea of our freedom from sin. Paul wants us to know that. Verse 8, now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Again, looking to our future, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. The resurrected Christ lives in relationship with God, and guess what? He invites us to live there with him. We have this opportunity to live out a newness of life. And that opportunity comes from Jesus opening the shackles of the sin and giving us a choice to follow. Now, what does that mean for us? How do we, how do we know? How do we engage this with our head? How do we remember this truth? Well, one thing that that helps us remember it is to be baptized. If you have never been baptized, maybe this morning is like me in Greek class uh, several years ago, a reminder for you of the picture that God has of baptism, and maybe God is leading you to be baptized at Wildwood on April the 3rd, which is our next baptism service, so that you can remember your identification with the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. That baptism won't save you, but but it's, it's a wonderful picture that God has given. One of the things that happens at Wildwood, because we see so many young people come to faith in Christ, so many young people who are baptized, it is, is something that we get accustomed to seeing children share their testimonies of faith in Christ, and we begin to think that baptism is only for kids. But here's the reality. Romans 6 doesn't have an expiration date on it. It doesn't say baptism is a great picture if you trust Christ before your 18th birthday. This baptism is what Christians do to help us remember what God has done for us. One of the things you can do is be baptized, and it's not too late. If you'd like to be a part of that April 3rd baptism, just come talk to me, and we'll we'll, we'll work that out. We'd love to have you participate with that. A second thing you can do is not just be baptized, but memorize Scripture. This passage in Romans 6 is a great one to memorize, as it reminds you of who you are now. You can live in light of this. It's like, a, it's like a spiritual ID card. You can go back and look at and see what God has offered us in Christ. 
The first thing he, Paul does is he talks about our head, something we already know. But then he moves in verse 11 down about 18 inches from our head to our hearts. And in, these, in, in verse 11, uh, he's going to tell us something that we are to do with that which we know, and that is internalize it or to consider that the Word of God is true. Consider that it is true. We, we see this in verse 11. He says, so that you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This word consider is translated in some other English translations as reckon. And you know, we're in the South, and so we might call reckon like I reckon I'll go to lunch after church today. Uh, that's really not the idea of reckon or consider. The idea of reckon or consider is really it's a word of faith. And it's a word that says that I'm going to deposit this truth into my heart. I'm going to believe that it's true. I'm going to believe that it's real. Its anchor is in the financial world where it would be used of something that was deposited. I'll give you an example. A few weeks ago, there was an error with my paycheck. And that which is normally deposited automatically into my account, I suddenly got this piece of paper to make up the difference. And, and, and here's this, this little piece of paper, and you know what? It's really pretty. The, the, the words are in the right spot, and there is a, a dollar amount there um, that, that is nice. Uh, but here's the question. As long as I've got this check in my hand, how valuable is this check to me? Not very, right? If I want to actually take advantage of the resources that this check indicates, I need to deposit it into my account. I need to consider it or reckon it against my ledger. And in a very similar way, what what we have in in, uh, Romans 6 is Paul saying, hey, look, you need to know these things, you need to remember these things, but you need to take them from your head to your heart and believe them and live as if they're true. To reckon or to consider as this other word for, for have faith or to take actions consistent with that belief. What does that look like? Well, for some to consider or to reckon these things as true, to, for it to impact our heart means that we're going to, to stop living our lives chained to an event in our past, a past failure. If we know Christ, the shackles have been set free from that. It doesn't mean that there are no temporal consequences in this life, but it means that with God, you have a relationship with him that can take you past that past failure to your future glory. Live forward, not backwards. And embracing that this is true is to live your life not as though God is, is mad at you, not as though God has rejected you, but to live your life as though God has redeemed you in Christ, which is what he has done if you trust. For others, it's, it's, it's not about your past guilt, but it's considering or reckoning these things are true would be to understand that you have a hope at overcoming a temptation that you're going through right now. See, there are some who say, I'm not going to go to rehab. I'm not going to um, get into accountability because I've tried those things in the past and it didn't work. I'm an addict. I can't stop looking at that. I can't stop seeing that person. We feel enslaved to some pattern of sin that has crept its way into our life and it's suffocating us right now. Part of reckoning or considering this to be true is to say, you know what? God has given me a choice. He's given me an option. He set me free from sin that I might choose to follow him. See, it's for our head, but it's also for our heart. But it's also for our hands. 
Verses 12 to 14 make this quite clear to us. With our hands, we are to present our bodies in obedience. 12 to 14 say this. It says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Now, Paul's admission here that we are to present our bodies helps us understand what it means to be dead to sin. Because if sin was no longer appealing to us as Christians, why would we need to present our bodies to God instead of to sin and its passions? I mean, Paul says there with sin and its passions that it's it's passionate. there's, There's an interest that it gives to us. But Paul said we have a choice in Christ to not present our bodies to death, but to present our bodies to life. We have that choice every day. And Paul says that we are to take the members of our body, all these different facets of our life, and we are to present them to God that he might use them for righteousness instead of presenting them to sin that it might be used for sin. So let's do a little roll call. And this is something that you could do on a daily basis as you get up and you're meditating in the morning for what your day will look like as you follow Christ. Think about presenting each of the members of your body to him. Present your mind to him. Lord, today, I'm not going to present my mind to believe lies, to follow things that are untrue. Instead, I'm going to dwell on your word and believe that what it says is true. I'm going to present my mind. I'm going to present my eyes today, Lord. I'm not going to look at things that I should not look at. I'm not going to delve into that pornography today. Instead, I'm going to use my eyes to see people as you created them, not as tools for me, but as people created in your image. And God, give me vision to see them. I'm going to present my eyes to you today, God. I'm going to present my mouth to you today, God, that I would not use my words to tear others down, but I'm going to use my words to build others up in Christ, to point people to him. I'm going to present my mouth to you today, Lord. I'm going to present my hands to you today, Lord that you would use them not for me to accumulate more things, but for me to serve and bless others. Present my feet to you today, Lord, not that I would spend my time merely on selfish pursuits, but my feet would take me into places where I could be present to minister to others. Father, that you would use every part of me, and, and it goes beyond that, to our wallets, to our homes, to our possessions. Present everything we have to the Lord and say, Lord, I want these things that you've entrusted to me, that you would use them today for righteousness and not for sin. See, when we understand the gospel and what God has done for us and the change that has happened in our head, our, our, our lives and our identity, when we know that up here, when we believe it in here, then we will present it out here in a way that follows Christ and not follows our own passion. Is it dangerous for God to offer us what he's offered us in Christ? Not if we understand the gospel. The gospel calls us forward, not backward. Our past is buried. Our future is secure. And we're called to live our lives forward. This is the good news of Jesus Christ, friends. And we have the opportunity to follow it because the chains have been broken. 
I'm going to invite the worship team to come. And they're going to lead us in a song of celebration at the end of this service as we reflect on the fact that the chains have been broken and we have the opportunity to follow him. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you. Thank you, thank you. Thank you, Father, that you have entrusted us with something so valuable. You've entrusted us with the gospel. Father, thank you that you have called us to respond to this gospel in faith that will involve our head and our heart and our hands. Father, help us to to follow you and to trust you and to walk with you as people who live on this side of the cross, on this side of the resurrection, people whose chains have been broken. We thank you. We pray these things in Jesus' name.